Good day and welcome to Eyewitness Good News, the first name in good news coverage. Today is a great day as we continue our in-depth coverage on the life of the recently deceased Jesus of Nazareth, who some claims the promised Messiah, even the Son of God. You've heard the buzz, you've heard all the rumors, and it's time to get the facts. Luke, the physician, has a reputation for carefully researched reporting, and this promises to be no exception. He has read the written accounts, traveled to the original locations, and interviewed eyewitnesses. And now that his careful investigation is over, he is ready to share his orderly account with all our viewers. For the details of his research, please find a copy of his excellent book. But for now, we will send you over to the field for today's top story. Thanks again to Luke for his excellent research, and thank you for tuning in. As always, this is Josh Smith for Eyewitness Good News. Well, good morning, friends, and welcome back, or welcome if it's your first time with us. We are in the middle of Eyewitness Good News. Uh, we're looking at uh, a book of the Bible we call the Gospel of Luke, and one of the interesting things about this book is that right in the very beginning, the author tells us how he wrote it. He says he wrote it by researching eyewitnesses, by reading the original accounts and by studying the situations of Jesus' life so that he could present a reliable and orderly account of the life of Jesus. And that's what we've been doing, is working our way through this reliable and orderly account. And we'll do that a little bit more in a minute. First of all, I need to tell you about a couple things, just a couple more announcements. You already heard about Easter, be planning on that. But I also want to say a word about kids' camp. Uh, kids camp is way in the future, and so on the one hand, it's a little early to talk about it, but I, I do want to start kind of um, challenging some of you with some, some thoughts about kids camp. We, you know, kids camp, we used to do this thing called VBS, and then about four years ago, we realized that as the needs of our community were changing, we needed to change our strategy. VBS for us had always been a half-day program, and a half-day program in the summer works great for families that have somebody at home who can drive their kids around in the middle of the day. But more and more of the families in our community, that isn't their situation. Even in the summer, uh, either it's a single parent home or both parents are working and they can't do a, you know, a 12.30 drop off or a 12.30 pickup or something like that. And so we needed a full day strategy to meet the needs of our community. And so we switched to that three or four years ago and it immediately proved that it was uh, meeting the needs of our community. More kids signed up. Um, we think, based off the growth we've seen over the last few years, that we, we could have 300 kids here uh, this year. Uh, that would represent growth, but that's what we've seen year after year after year since we've switched to this strategy. We have a lot of families in our community, families that are not connected to churches, that are excited about a free, all-day option for their kids because caring for kids during the summer is a huge burden on so many families. So we made this big switch. God has blessed it. We have seen seen so much fruit from this transition. And um, we don't currently have the volunteer capacity to care for 300 kids for all day. That's just the truth. Where we are today, as fast as this program is growing, we need people who have not done this ministry before to jump in and say, yeah, I'll do it. How many more people? Something like 60. That's a lot. Um, that's why we're talking about it early. Uh, because we do not want to find ourselves in the position, position 
where there's a family that wants to send their kids to our program and we have to tell them no because we can't safely care for their children. That is not a thing we're looking forward to. Obviously, we'll do it if we have to. We aren't going to create unsafe situations. But so we're talking about it early. I know it's March and kids camp is way away in June. But uh, we want to make this super easy for you. If you think, even if you're just like, okay, I'm not sure I'm up for it, but I'll listen. I'll learn about it. I'll find out what I could do. We have half-day serving options. We have all-day serving options. We have drop-off options. We have lots of ways you can help. If you're even at all interested, look in, your, in the bulletin today on the connection card. There's a box you can check. There's a kiosk downstairs. You can stop by there. This is a real ministry opportunity. God has been blessing this like crazy, and we just need to step up into the moment. So I know it's crazy, 60 people. It's a whole week year summer. I get it. I wouldn't ask if we didn't think it was a high-impact opportunity for us to really love our community. So be thinking about kids camp. All right, where were we? Well, let's see. Um, we're 12 chapters in uh, to the Gospel of Luke. Three chapters a week we've been doing. Maybe you've been reading along. We've learned that Jesus is announced to the world as the, the king that God would send, the son of God, God with us, and that he himself announces that he is building a kingdom and that there is a way for rebels against God to become citizens of God's kingdom. And today we're going to look at chapters 13 through 15. And I'm doing it a little differently. Uh, for, uh, for every other week of this series, we're going to kind of, I've like, we've taken the three chapters and I've picked like one story or two stories that we would kind of look at more carefully. Uh, but today I'm going to, we're going to look at a whole bunch of it. So if you've got a Bible with you, grab a paper Bible. I hope you will kind of be flipping through. We're going to look at, we're in chapter Luke, chapter 13, 14, and 15. And we're going to look through a whole bunch of it and we're going to move fast and we're gonna there's a lot of detail in here we won't get to talk about but we are going to discover this great sort of theme that runs through these chapters Luke describes his account as an orderly account and as we've already discussed uh, orderly in his context doesn't necessarily mean chronological although parts of it are chronological it means organized. And so we find sections of Luke that seem to be organized around central themes. And that's true of Luke 13, 14, and 15. And, and what the theme, you might say, is a, is a paradox of our faith. Uh, the paradox between the exclusivity of Jesus and the inclusivity of Jesus. We'll look at several parables and you'll, we'll sort of wonder, are they parables of grace or are they parables of judgment? And we won't quite be sure. Are they parables of invitation or are they parables of challenge? Take a look at one. You'll, you'll see what I mean. Right there in the beginning, Luke chapter 13, hopefully by now you pulled out your Bibles, you pulled it up on your phone. We're going to look at a lot of text together. Let's look at this. Luke 13, now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifice. Pilate was a cruel Roman governor and he had slaughtered a bunch of Galileans who had come to offer sacrifices at the temple. Uh, the reasons are complex and beyond the scope of this sermon, but anyways, it happened. Jesus answered, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. 
Or those 18 who died in the tower of Siloam fell, when, fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. He's saying, listen, when bad things happen to people, don't assume they're worse people. Bad things just happen. Everybody dies unless you repent. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. He went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of his vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for the fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the dirt? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears no fruit, if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. You see what I mean? Is that a parable of grace or a parable of judgment? I mean, it's a little bit like a parable of judgment, right? If it doesn't bear fruit next year, we're going to cut it down. But it's also a parable of grace. Give it another year, the gardener says. Give it another year, the gardener says. Now, right now, is not the moment of judgment. Right now is the moment of grace. Give it another year. Some of the parables in this section are simpler. Uh, look on, just below Luke 13, 18. Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? This kingdom that Jesus is building over which he is king. He says, well, it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Uh, this is not only a reference just generically to the way the kingdom of a God grows from small beginnings to great impact, it's also a reminder, everyone listening to Jesus would have remembered what the prophet Ezekiel said, that God would take the very tip of the tree and from the tip of the tree would plant again the tree of God's kingdom and it would grow into a great tree in which the birds of all the nations would come and find shelter. Jesus says, that, that's the thing I'm doing now. That thing that grows from small beginnings to great impact in which everyone is welcome. This is what the prophet Ezekiel anticipated. That sort of sounds like a parable of grace, doesn't it? A parable of good news, a parable of inclusion. And yet, just a few verses later, Luke 13, 22. Then as Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem, someone asked him, Lord, will it only be a few people that get saved? We still love these generic theological questions like this, don't we, right? The big, the big theological questions, how many, how often, who, where, how. Jesus doesn't exactly give an answer. He said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. John 10, we know that Jesus is talking about himself there. He is the narrow door. He uses this image several times to refer to his own rescue plan, his own establishment of the kingdom. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he'll answer, I don't know you or where you come from. 
You'll say, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he'll reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, you evildoers. There'll be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself thrown out. People will come from the north, from the east and west and north and south, and they will take their places in the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. They ask the generic theological question, and he doesn't answer their question very neatly. I mean, overall, it's clear the answer is no. Will only a few be saved? No. It's clear by the end of the parable, many will be saved from north and south and east and west. But yet, there is such exclusivity in his answer. Be very careful then that you enter through the narrow door, Jesus said. And he's the door. He says, many will miss it. Many will miss it. Is it a parable of judgment? Or is it a parable of grace? There's a tension there. It's a little bit of both. I was reading... um, few weeks ago, and then again yesterday, just to remind myself, um, several commentaries on the Gospel of Luke that I've kind of been using as I've been preparing these messages. Many of the commentators took the opportunity when discussing this parable to notice how rarely Jesus answers generic theological questions. The kinds of questions like, how many will be saved? He almost never answers generic theological questions. Sometimes, uh, probably the one I hear most common is this one. If Jesus is the only way to salvation, what about the people who never had a chance to hear about Jesus? You know, what about those people? That's a great question. It really is. It's ama- if it's never occurred to you, it's occurred to you now. It's a great question. And the Bible never gives us the clarity of answer we would like for these kinds of great theological imponderables. They come to Jesus with a great theological imponderable. How many are going to get saved? And he says, well, the door is narrow. And they'll come from the east and the west and the north and the south. The first will be last and the last will be first. And you're like, well, which is it, Jesus? And to that great question about, you know, what about the people, you know? The Bible doesn't give us a super clear answer. It does tell us that the mercy of God through Jesus Christ is for the whole world and will be accomplished through Jesus. It tells us that many we don't expect to be part of the kingdom of God will end up being part of the kingdom of God. It says that here and many other places. So I take great hope in that. But our speculative theological questions are almost never answered. What kinds of theological questions does the Bible answer? Well, it does answer our personal theological questions. What must I do? Well, Jesus says, you must be very careful that you do not miss the narrow door. You must be very careful that you do not miss the narrow door, and I am the narrow door. 
It's an interesting thing about the way Jesus teaches. Never focusing on the generic and the theological, always focusing on the personal. Our response to Jesus Christ. That for all who respond to Jesus Christ, there is hope and mercy. And at the same time, it is possible to see the door to salvation and walk right past it. This tension between the wide mercy of God for all and the narrow means of that mercy through Jesus Christ just continues throughout these chapters. Uh, Chapter 14, um, Jesus is at a banquet and he uses this banquet opportunity uh, to teach many things. He teaches humility uh, to the guests that are there. He teaches generosity and mercy to the guests that are there. And then he teaches them about the hospitality of God. Listen again to this parable. And again, you'll see what I mean. It's hard to know. Is this a parable of mercy or is this just a parable of judgment? Is this a parable of welcome or is it a parable of challenge? Luke chapter 14, verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus seems to agree with that sentiment, and so he tells them a story. He says this, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry. He ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master said, well, great, then go out into the countryside. Go out to the the county lanes. Compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And I tell you, not one of those who were invited but refused will get a taste of my banquet. Again, you see the tension, right? Is it a parable of mercy that the servants of the master are going out to find unexpected people to bring them into the peace feast? People who never thought they would be invited, people who never thought they would be welcome, people who never thought they would be included? Or is it a parable of judgment that the people who knew where they were invited the people who knew they were welcome, the people who knew they were included, thought so little of the invitation that they busied themselves with the stuff of life rather than say yes to the banquet. You see the tension, don't you? It's a little bit of both. I have great concern. I have great concern for Christians who have gotten so complacent with the gift that is salvation 
that it has become the least important thing in their life. I have great concern for people who have become so confident in their invitation to the banquet that when the time comes to feast, they say, oh, sorry, I've got to go work on my finances. Sorry, I've got to go work on my career. Sorry, I've got to go work on the house. Sorry, I've got this relationship thing. More invested in the affairs of this life than they are the beauty of the invitation to the banquet that they've received. I, I want to wrestle with this text. I want you to wrestle with this text. Are you still aware of how blessed we are that we have been invited into the kingdom of God? Or is it more important to go test out your new oxen? Are you still making the the work of the kingdom of God your very highest priority? Or is it more important to go on your honeymoon? It's a very practical matter, you know. Do you organize your life around your participation in the kingdom of God? Or do you organize your participation in the kingdom of God around your life? Do you organize your finances around your generosity to the church? Or do you organize your generosity to the church around all your other finances? Uh, Likewise, I have grave concern for those who would call themselves servants of the master who don't know that their job is to go invite people to the feast. Imagine, imagine if the servant had seen that, that the invitations, the RSVPs were coming back no, and that the house wasn't going to be full. Imagine if the servant in that moment had said, more food for the rest of us. This party's going to last a month. We'll never run out. I, I worry that that happens to us. When we see others ignore the invitation of Christ's grace, we somehow develop this spiritual pride that I guess we're the special ones at the party. Instead of the urgency to fill our master's house, The role of the servants of the master is to extend the invitation of the banquet. The role of the servants of the master is to extend the invitation to the banquet. Both to those who never thought they would be invited and to those who knew they were invited and ignored the invitation and need to be called back to their senses. You may be wondering at this point, why would anybody who was so invited ignore this invitation, right? Why would you ignore it? Well, let's keep reading. Luke 14, 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. He turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate my father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person 
cannot be my disciple. Uh, it just helps, just so you know, this, this notion of the word hate here doesn't mean hate as in to think evil thoughts about or to act cruelly toward. This is a word about priorities. It's about, it means that you have put it as your low priority and not your high priority. If you haven't decided these are all secondary matters and my highest priority is Jesus, you can't be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Wouldn't you first sit down and estimate the cost and see if you have the money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build but couldn't finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not... He'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples. Jesus says, I want you to count the cost. Again, is it a parable of mercy or a parable of judgment? Is it a parable of welcome is it, or a parable of challenge? On the one hand, it's a parable of welcome. Anybody who chooses to can become a follower of Jesus. On the other hand, it's a parable of challenge. All you have to do is give up everything else and make Jesus your only priority. That's it. The tension just stays there, doesn't it? Luke moves on uh, to some of the most famous parables of Jesus. But they continue to tell the story of this tension. Luke chapter 15. Let's keep going. The tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now why were these rebels against God gathering around with the Son of God? Well, because remember, part of what he offers is a way for rebels to become citizens. And they knew it. And they were attracted by it. They were invited by it. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulder and goes home. He calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. We must pause for a second. We can never forget the absurdity of this story. When Jesus tells this story, you know, doesn't a person leave the 99 and go look for the one? Everybody in the room knew the answer to that question. The answer is no. If you're in the open country and you're a shepherd and you've lost one and you have 99, you cut your losses. You don't leave the 99 to go look for the one. By the time you get back, the 99 will be scattered. Jesus is teaching them something radical about the welcome and love of God. That God pursues the one who is lost more than the 99 who are found. I tell you, the same way there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 
Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner's one sinner who repents. And then he tells this story about a father who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country. He squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything he had, there was a severe famine in the country, and he began to be in need. So he hired himself out to a citizen of that country. He sent him into the field to feed the pigs. He was so hungry, he wished he could have eaten what the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He didn't get to finish his speech, though. The father cuts him off. He says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he hasn't back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father. He said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. He's asking, how could you have gone and invited him to the feast? The father replies, my son, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There's so much in these parables. Every one of these parables that I've read so quickly here this morning, every one could be their own sermon. That last one, I preached a whole sermon series on it one time. Preached six sermons on the one parable. And I know we've read through a lot. But what I want you to notice is this consistent tension Even in that last parable, we heard it, right? 
There is the welcome. God is the good shepherd searching for the one lost sheep. God is the woman searching for the coin. God is the father patiently waiting for his son to return. There is the radical welcome, the radical inclusivity of God searching, loving, seeking, receiving, rescuing, redeeming. And there is the exclusivity. There's the party inside the house and the elder son who stands outside the house and the father goes to him and says, you are welcome into the party. I want you into the party. But if you refuse to participate in the radical grace of your father, you'll miss it. You were welcome. You were invited. But the party's in there. And you're going to have to humble yourself and get over your judgmental spirit and receive my love, welcome and challenge. The narrow road made widely available. It's always there. A way into the kingdom, a way for every rebel to become a citizen. But the only way is Jesus. I read through a series of parables like this, and I have so many theological questions that I want answers to. Some highly speculative, some just a little bit speculative. Like the people that came to Jesus and said, tell us exactly how many people are going to get saved. Almost none of my speculative theological questions are answered with the level of detail I want. We don't get the clarity I would like on that. But we do have sufficient clarity. I would say even abundant clarity on all of my personal theological questions. We may not have the clarity we want on all the great questions for all the ages, all the speculative thoughts that come to mind, but we have enough clarity for the spiritual moment we face. Every week, the center of our worship is the meal of communion. Uh, If you received elements on the way in, great. If not, uh, get a hand in the air and somebody will get those elements to you right now. We're going to take communion in just a minute. Uh, If you're worshiping online, grab something so you can participate with us. This communion meal, Jesus says that the banquet of the communion meal is an anticipation of the great heavenly banquet. The one we've been reading about in all these parables today. You probably noticed like half the parables we read ended with a a banquet, a feast, right? The communion meal is a foretaste of that feast. And everyone, regardless of circumstance or status or background, everyone who is trusting their life to Jesus Christ is invited to this meal. Everyone who has said, you are king, and my rebellion is over, is invited to this meal. Many, of course, will refuse the invitation. They'll be too busy. They'll put their 
relationships first. They'll put their kingdom first. They'll put their wealth first or their kids first. And if we put anything before Jesus, we miss the narrow door. We miss our invitation to the banquet. Without any hint of of cruelty, but just with clarity, I want to warn you, Jesus does not accept second place in a person's life. He is the king, establishing a kingdom. And all rebels can become citizens if they will just give him their allegiance. But if he is not your king, you are part of the rebellion. You might be hearing all this right now. And you might think, I've done all these things. I have refused the invitation because I had to go check on my oxen or go on my honeymoon. I have ignored the narrow door of Christ and pursued my own way. I have tried to figure out a way to be in the kingdom but not acknowledge Jesus as king. I have rejected repentance. I have run away like the prodigal. I have wandered off like the sheep. I have done all those things. Maybe you even think, I am doing all those things. I am a rebel. I am a poor beggar wishing I could be at the feast. And maybe you wonder, even in this moment, is it too late for me? Did I miss my chance? Have I messed up too much? Have I gone too far? No. No. Today isn't the day of judgment. Today is the day of grace. Today is the day the gardener says, no, don't cut the tree down. Dig around the roots. Let me fertilize it a little bit. Water it. This is the day of grace. Today is the day the master says to the servants, one more time, before we shut the door, go around the country. Tell people the feast has room. Even now. In just a minute, I'm going to pray, um, and we'll share this meal together. And some of you need to use this time to make a commitment for Jesus. To, to recommit yourself to Jesus. To just be honest that you don't have to have all the speculative theological questions to know what, to have enough clarity for your own soul. That the, the, the road is narrow and it's widely available. And I can't solve that paradox. I just know it's true. That Jesus is the king And he's made a way for rebels to become citizens. But if we don't choose that way, we stay rebels. And maybe you need to make that choice as we share today. There'll be a chance later. If you need me to pray for you, we'll give you a chance to do that later. There's a banquet. 
two brothers got invited to this banquet. One knew he needed his father's grace. And so he went right into the feast. The other stood outside. And the story ends. And we don't know whether he went in or not. That's sort of like where you are today. Let me pray for you. Oh God, the wideness of your mercy overwhelms us. That you would show love and compassion to everyone. That you would make a way for all. That you would open your arms to any who would receive your son. The wideness of your mercy, God, overwhelms us. And then you teach us about the narrow way, which is Jesus Christ. I pray right here in this moment, God, I pray for everyone who is seeking another way, that they would awaken to the reality that no such way exists. I pray to everyone who has taken for granted the invitation of your son and started to treat it casually and get busy with the things of this life rather than showing up for the feast of your mercy. I pray they would be confronted with that today, God. And that even though not every question we have is answered, we would have enough clarity to know what we must do in this moment to give our life to you so that we might be rescued, redeemed, and made citizens feasting at the banquet of our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's share together now in the meal of communion.